Section 32 of The Early Hanoverians by Edward Ellis Morris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Book 3, Chapter 3, English Literature, Part 2. A greater novelist than Richardson was created by a spirit of opposition to the preaching, namby-pamby tone of Pamela. Henry Fielding was as different as possible from Richardson, both in character and circumstances. Fielding was of a good family, educated at Eton and trained for the law, but his father being of extravagant habits and dying before Fielding came of age, the young man was forced to live by his wits. To make a living he wrote for the stage, but his plays did not live. Fielding was a thorough man of the world, lived a fast life and spent money as readily as his father had. A not unnatural inclination to ridicule Pamela suggested that he should write a parody. To this he gave the name of Joseph Andrews. The book was published the year after Pamela. Joseph Andrews is a young footman, Pamela's brother, to whom his mistress makes love, and who was turned out of his master's house, and then wanders about England together with a friend named Parson Adams, one of the best remembered of Fielding's characters, a strange compound of learning and simplicity. This book seemed to reveal to Fielding his true vocation in literature, and was followed by other novels of which Tom Jones is the most famous. Fielding's novels may be said to hold the mirror up to nature. Of poor human nature, indeed, he does not take an exalted view, but he paints the world as he found it. Complaint is commonly made of Fielding's coarseness. The truth is that he found coarseness in society around him. Of this he tones down naught. Neither will he put a veil over it as Richardson did. In humor it may be questioned whether Fielding has ever been surpassed, but his chief merit lies in the lifelike fidelity with which, in endless variety, he photographed what he saw. Circumstances placed in Fielding's way the opportunity to become well acquainted with a baser side of human nature, for he was appointed a stipendiary magistrate in London. Very honorably and thoroughly he is said to have done his work, and his position gave him an insight into the life and temptations of the poor as well as of the criminal classes, of which he certainly made use in his writings. But the double labor of judicial and literary work proved too much for a constitution which his earlier fast life had undermined. Doctors ordered a warmer climate, and he went to Lisbon, where he died at the early age of 47, about a year before the famous earthquake in that city, which occurred on November 1, 1755. The third of the great novelists is Tobias Smollett, who was surgeon's mate on board a man-of-war engaged in the expedition to Cartagena. He had studied at Glasgow University and was apprenticed to a medical man in that town, but his medical training must have been over at an early age, for before he was nineteen he travelled up to London with the manuscript of a tragedy in his pocket, more ambitious of fame in literature than anxious for work as a doctor. He had, however, to take the position in the Navy which he held for only a few years, disliking it all the while. No one can think such dislike unnatural who reads of the horrible condition of the men-of-war. On leaving the service, 
Smollett settled for a short time in the West Indies, but the old literary ambition brought him back to London. All forms of literature seem to have occupied him, political pamphlets. In poetry, a few occasional pieces with both pathos and power. In history, a continuation of Hume's History of England. He translated Don Quixote, edited a magazine, wrote plays, medical works, and a book of travels that shows a curious want of appreciation. But his chief books are his novels, Roderick Random, Peregrine Pickle, Humphrey Clinker. Smollett was not one of the men who take life easily. At the best, he had a testy temper. His circumstances were never good, and worry made his temper worse. The violence of his attack upon the admiral who did not take Cartagena procured him imprisonment for three months. He was always at war with brother doctors or with other literary men. Nothing appeared to him good in the countries through which he traveled. At the same time, it must be remembered that Smollett was to a rare degree patriotic and high-minded. After Culloden, when the country was full of the stories of the ferocity with which the rebellion was being suppressed, Smollett wrote a short poem called Scotland's Tears. He was advised to suppress the poem as noxious to the government. His only answer was to add another and more indignant verse. There is a pretty story about Smollett's return to his home. Having been long absent, he introduced himself to his mother as a stranger. Though he tried to frown, his mother's steady gaze at length made him smile, and she put her arms around his neck, saying, Ah, my son, I have found you at last. Your old roguish smile has betrayed you. There is no doubt about Smollett's humor typified in this roguish smile, but he took the world hardly and was generally in conflict. He suffered from bad health and latterly was obliged to live in Italy. He died at Ligorne when only a little over fifty. Smollett's novels depend for success not on skillful arrangement of plot, but on amusing characters. His books are like a picture in which there are admirable likenesses and striking figures, but in which the different elements are not well blended. Of his characters, as might be expected from his history, the most successful are his sailors. Smollett may be regarded as the ancestor of all the sea novels in which English literature is rich. One other novel rather than novelist must be added to those already mentioned. Tristram Shandy, by the Reverend Lawrence Stern, a clergyman as little fitted for his profession as Dean Swift. Stern was not a good clergyman nor a good man. He has been convicted of using other people's learning and making love to other people's wives. But he has written a book of admirable humor and pathos, a strangely compounded romance with characters in it worthy of Shakespeare. Stern is also the author of The Sentimental Journey, a book which presents a remarkable contrast to Smollett's book of travels, for the author betrays no feeling of hatred to all that is not English, but is generous toward foreigners and appreciative of all the good that he sees. It may be added that poor Stern died friendless and alone in London lodgings. Section 3. Dr. Johnson and His Circle In 1760, when George III succeeded his grandfather, the leading figure among the literary men 
was Dr. Johnson. That date may be taken for a break in Dr. Johnson's life, the early part of which was one long struggle against want. During the latter part, Dr. Johnson reigned acknowledged king in the English world of letters. It has been remarked that Johnson's age lay intermediate between the days of patronage by the great and the days of appreciation by the public. Like all intermediate things, it had not the full advantages of either extreme. Yet Dr. Johnson's comfort in the later portion of his life was partly due to a pension given to him early in the reign of George III. And though the purchasers of his books were not in number like the clients of a modern popular author, yet Dr. Johnson had an outside public for audience as well as an inner circle of admirers. Samuel Johnson was the son of a poor bookseller at Litchfield. His personal appearance was most ungainly. He was of great size and scrofulous. One of his earliest recollections was being taken to London to be touched by Queen Anne for the king's evil, as scrofula was then called. His manners were strange and excited amusement. But there was in Johnson a native worth, a noble independence of thought and speech, maintained often in the extremity of distress, which made and still make him honored in spite of his peculiarities. Educated first in his native town, Johnson was, through the kindness of a patron, able to enter upon a student's career at Pembroke College, Oxford. But his life at the university was a long struggle against poverty. He was too proud to accept the new pair of shoes which someone in pity had placed at his door. Unable to take a degree, for the title of doctor by which he is always called was an honorary degree conferred later in life. Samuel Johnson became an usher at various provincial schools. Afterwards, he tried a school of his own and was unsuccessful. Johnson had not the patience that is required for a teacher, and at length found the servitude of schoolwork so intolerable to his proud spirit that he exchanged one set of chains for another, and going to London became a bookseller's hack. A hack earns a scanty living by doing various jobs for booksellers, writes a preface, makes an index, edits some republication of an old book. During this time, Johnson was often miserably poor. In his own dignified and sonorous verse, Johnson has told us, slow rises worth by poverty depressed. Painful experience had taught him this truth, which indeed is not difficult to apprehend, but through all the pain of his experience, no want and no distress ever touched the honesty of his purpose or the inherent dignity of his mind. From adversity, Johnson learned self-control, while it strengthened his tender feeling for the suffering of others. When happier days arrived, and Johnson was in comparative prosperity, was recognized and honored, he always exhibited a gentle and true charity to all who needed it. His dwelling was even described as a sort of asylum for helpless indigence. Johnson was engaged on the early numbers of the Gentleman's Magazine, contributing to it accounts of debates in Parliament. It was not then legal to publish reports of the proceedings of Parliament, and Johnson used to veil the identity of the speakers under false names. Being a man of strong political prejudices, 
He afterwards allowed that he always took care that the Whig dogs should always get the worst of it. A still more important contribution to periodical literature were two journals that he published somewhat in the style of Addison's Spectator, The Idler and The Rambler. The great work, however, of Johnson's life was the Dictionary of the English Language, which has served as the basis of all English dictionaries since published until the last year or two. Its chief value consists not in the definitions which are sometimes ludicrously prejudiced, nor in the etymology which often reads like guesswork, but in its quotations from standard English authors. Herein, Dr. Johnson's wide knowledge of our literature was of great service. By resolute and unflinching industry, he accomplished in seven years a work which in other countries has occupied learned societies a much longer time. Rosslus, Prince of Abyssinia, is a tale that illustrates Johnson's views of human life. It was written by Johnson in a very short space of time in order to defray the expenses of his mother's funeral. Though chiefly a writer of prose, Johnson is the author of two poems, imitations of the satires of Juvenal, London and the Vanity of Human Wishes. No one can call him a poet, yet each of these satires contains dignified and sonorous lines of remarkable power. Dr. Johnson's last work was The Lives of the Poets, in which he is often unfair, or at least unappreciative, but always suggestive. Dr. Johnson's style is one by no means to be imitated. There is a frequent employment of antithesis and balance. The sentences are heavy and labored, and very full of words derived from the Latin. The style may be compared to Ulysses' bow, which none but he could bend. Johnson used the style with effect, but his imitators are well-nigh unreadable. Nay more, one can almost say that the reason why the sterling worth of many of Johnson's writings is now so little appreciated is that scorning the English elements in our language, he made almost exclusive use of the learned and really foreign vocabulary. The style has already done damage to his fame. Yet, if Johnson's own works are not studied as they should be, the character and personality of Johnson is well known. Hardly anyone in our literary history is so familiar. This curious fact is due to the fullness and excellence of the biography by his faithful friend James Boswell. Boswell was what is now termed a hero-worshipper. So profound was the reverence that he entertained for Dr. Johnson that he chronicled the smallest details of his life and the fragments of his conversation, so that readers seemed to know Johnson and the society in which he lived as well as they know the circle of their own friends. Round about Dr. Johnson in the later part of his life, all the great men in literature and in art seemed to cluster. Not on one evening only, but on many, a visitor might have found grouped round Dr. Johnson at meetings of the literary club, besides other men whose names, though known to fame, are perhaps less worth remembering, Oliver Goldsmith, Edmund Burke, Garrick, Gibbon, and Sir Joshua Reynolds. All of these were younger than Johnson and belonged to the coming time, 
rather than to the reigns of the first two Georges, with which this little volume is concerned. Of the five, the oldest was David Garrick, the greatest of English actors. He was a fellow townsman and had been a pupil of Johnson's. The next was Sir Joshua Reynolds, greatest of English portrait painters, first president of the Royal Academy. Goldsmith and Burke were about the same age, a little over thirty on the accession of George III. At that date, Goldsmith was in the middle of that period of his life when he was working for the booksellers, writing the most beautiful English about subjects as to which he knew either nothing or very little. The eloquent voice of Edmund Burke had not yet been heard in Parliament. His writings, too, belonged to the future. At the accession of George III, Edward Gibbon was serving his country as a captain in the Hampshire militia. He had found Oxford barren of intellectual life, and the future skeptic had there only been converted to Roman Catholicism. To be reclaimed to Protestantism, he had been sent abroad to Lausanne, where he had learned French so perfectly that his first essay, already written, on the study of literature, was written in French. At Lausanne he had fallen in love with the beautiful and virtuous lady, afterwards the wife of the French minister Necker. After a painful struggle, Gibbon had yielded to fate, his father's opposition, had sighed as a lover, obeyed as a son. Already the young officer had made up his mind to be a historian, but four years were yet to elapse before he sat musing amidst the ruins of the capital, while the barefooted friars were singing vespers in the temple of Jupiter, and the idea of writing the decline and fall of the Roman Empire started to his mind. End of section 32